Say hi to a few people and then have a seat. Well, before we get into the study, uh, in about 40 minutes, uh, Jeff Henneforth, who's over in Cambodia, um, they are doing a baptism on the military base. And so it's a baptism for military personnel that have given their lives to Christ and, and want to get baptized. They have about 400 people signed up already to be baptized, so... That'll be at about 8 o'clock our time. Uh, Jeff did seem a little hesitant because uh, they told him he needs to wear long pants and a long sleeve shirt because of the leeches. So a little different from getting baptized in my jacuzzi, huh? <laughs> but let's lift them up in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this great opportunity that Jeff and Chomno and the others will be able to have to baptize so many people in a country that's so dark and yet you've opened these doors of opportunity and right there on the military base, giving them the privilege of being able to baptize these new believers, introducing them into the faith. And so, Lord, please keep them safe from leeches and everything else in the water and just bless that time incredibly. Give the people who are on the fence just courage to identify with you and use this as an encouragement to all the pastors and missionaries and everybody who are in that area as they see what a great thing that you've done. And so, Lord, we just ask your spirit to supersede over that whole thing tonight, and we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, you might have noticed the carpet's torn out on the sides, so... Um, that means they're going to be starting to build in here pretty quick, tomorrow actually, so that's kind of exciting. If you think about it, we should probably, well, maybe take, uh, now nah, you know what, I'll let them worry about moving the chairs because I'm not sure how many and everything, so we'll just take care of that tomorrow. But um, let's get into Luke chapter 13. Also remember, I didn't know this, but I saw some dessert back in the, in the uh, fellowship hall, and since it's not my birthday, I'm assuming that this is one of those nights when the ladies bring dessert, so hang around after church and eat a lot of things that are bad for you. <laughs> Luke chapter 13, we left off after verse 21. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. And the point that Jesus was making in these parables was um, that not everyone who identifies with the church is actually someone who's for real. That it can get huge visibly, and yet the people who really are walking with Christ and really trusting in Him might not be all the people who show up at church. It's primarily just Wednesday night people. Uh, are the real Christians. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't want to freak the people out who are listening on the internet. So as they were going through that, in verse 23, somebody said, Lord, are there few who are saved? They got the two parables, and they're like, so? I mean, who gets in and who doesn't? 
And so Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, but we ate and drank in your presence. We had refreshments after church, and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. So Jesus says it's not just hanging out with him that makes you a Christian. It's people who really enter into a relationship with him. It's kind of interesting that he identifies the ones who don't get in, uh, who seem really surprised, as workers of iniquity. Now, it's not sin that keeps you out. It's not sin that, you know, conquering sin that makes you a Christian necessarily. But when you really have a relationship with the Lord, it does change the way you live. It really does. It makes a difference. And if it doesn't, something's really wrong. We'll be talking about this Sunday in, as we go through First Peter, um, the beginning of the fourth chapter. Um, Peter kind of develops this theme a lot. But the point Jesus is making is, hey, a lot of guys who think they're cool with me aren't. Um, it's a narrow way. It's not a broad way. And these people seem shocked that, hey, wait a minute. How about me? And he goes, sorry. I don't know where you're from, but you haven't made that kind of a commitment that gives you a, an eternal connection with me. And this should certainly give us pause, not make us paranoid, but cause us to just ask ourselves, look at our lives and say, does our life really have the fruit? Does it it look like we really believe this stuff? There are an awful lot of people who talk a good game, have their theology down, but aren't really walking with the Lord. And I don't know where to draw the line. I can't judge, are you saved or are you not? But all I can say is there are a lot of people who will think that they are who aren't. Over in Matthew's gospel, when Jesus talks about this, he talks about separating the sheep and goats based on primarily what they did to people who were really in need. Those who were visiting people in prison, those who were feeding people who were hungry, clothing the naked, that that those were some of the criteria that he used in that case. But there has to be a difference in your life. You can't just live life just the same way you always did and think that somehow you're going to be fine with God. He demands discipleship. Um, He demands reality. He wants you to really care about him, not just go through the motions and attend church. So um, that causes me to be concerned for a lot of people who are out on the fringes. I know that God's grace is amazing, and I hope that we're just shocked at how many people get to heaven. But Jesus was just letting them know a lot of people aren't going to make it who somehow think they are. And then he says, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Now he's talking primarily to Jewish religious leaders in this context and saying, you know, you say you follow after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to make it, but you may not because obviously you need to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Messiah, just being a good person or obeying the law isn't enough. And he says, they'll come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. In other words, people are coming from all over the place. 
the Pharisees used to hate it when Jesus would make this point that Gentiles get to come too and that he's going to draw people from all over the place. Um, but this is the point that he's making here to them. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. We will be surprised at some of the people who get to heaven. We'll be surprised at some of the people who don't get to heaven. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem at the time, and so they came to him, and they didn't want him coming to Jerusalem, so they told him, Herod wants to kill you. Now, there's no reason to disbelieve this. Herod probably did want to kill him. That sounds totally like Herod, but Jesus said to them, go tell that fox, and he didn't mean that in a good way. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. In other words, I have work to do, and wait till you see what my trick I have up my sleeve on the third day when I am completed and resurrected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, so it's going to take me a while to get to Jerusalem, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. He goes, well, if he's going to kill me, Jerusalem's a perfect place to do it, because that's where most of the prophets got killed. So Jesus wasn't very worried about death threats. And then Jesus, reflecting on Jerusalem, prays and, and just mourns in this way, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, and assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus looking at Jerusalem and thinking of all of her potential and all that God had tried to do to communicate his love to, to the Jewish people who centered their worship there in Jerusalem. The whole thing was about him. And yet he's looking at them and going, every time a prophet comes, you guys kill him. Now, it's an interesting passage from a theological standpoint as well. And probably one of the most difficult passages for anyone who adheres to a strong Calvinistic position. Um, if you don't know what that is, I don't have time to explain all of it, but one thing that Calvinists believe is in this concept of the sovereignty of God, that everything that God wants to happen happens, and people really don't have a choice. We are basically robots programmed from creation to be exactly who we are. And he, he only died to save some people and other people he created just to stoke the fires of hell, basically. But this is impossible to, and there are two times when Jesus prayed this as well, over in John's gospel as well. But, you know, Jesus said, I wanted to gather you. I wanted to save you. Of course, Peter says that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is something that doesn't make a lot of sense to somebody who's going to adhere to a real strict Calvinistic position. I love Calvinists. Some of the greatest men of God that I've known and who have been around in history have really leaned toward Calvinism, probably as a reaction against some kookiness on the other side. Um, but 
Jesus said he wanted to, but you were not willing. Now, I'm not going to solve that for you, but I'll just say this. Somehow, our will can get in the way of what God wants. Now, I don't understand how that fits with God's sovereignty. God can do anything that he chooses to do, but he apparently doesn't choose to do everything that he wants to do. And you can play with the meaning of the word want, and people have to twist this scripture in every way possible to try to come up with a real narrow um, understanding of the sovereignty of God. But I would prefer just to believe this. I kind of hate to think about a world where God doesn't really want everyone to get saved. And yet, I would also hate to think of a world whereby people don't really have a choice, where we aren't given the freedom to be able to make that kind of a choice. Now, I don't know how to put that together with a lot of other scriptures that would seem to rock the boat on this, but when Jesus said this, I just believe him. And when I've talked to Calvinists, to try to see how, what they do with this passage, you get a all round and around ex- twisting of. I, I've had Calvinists tell me that this was Jesus just speaking in his flesh, that this was not Jesus speaking as God. But then I would say, well, and, and I did say to them, so in his flesh, he wants to gather them under his wings like a chicken. I mean, how how in the world could he? Could a man desire to do that? That just, doesn't, that just doesn't make sense. So it doesn't make for a real neat package theologically. And, and if you're a Calvinist, don't worry, I'm moving on right now. But um, I just, you know, at the end of the day, this is a scripture that you would certainly have to really come up with a clear understanding of in order to still adhere to the idea that somehow God only wants to save some people. Um, I'm just glad he wanted to save me. So the good thing is, because I'm saved, and so I know he chose me, so I'm not in danger. And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you're not either. But I like to be able to tell everyone who I meet that God loves them and that he wants to draw them to himself. And that's what I, I believe. I believe the one thing that will stand in the way of that is people not choosing to allow him to do that. God just doesn't want to force people into heaven. And uh, sometimes it seems like he does, but he doesn't. He gives us a choice, and that's why this world is in the mess that it's in, frankly. Apparently, choice was valuable enough to God that he allowed the fall in the Garden of Eden. He allows all the sin and devastation that happens in the world um, because for God to not let people have a choice is worse than everything that you see in this world. So he designed the world this way, and he allows us to make horrible choices and suffer consequences of those choices. And when you think about it, if people didn't have a choice, almost everything that we hold dear would not be even in existence. It would be meaningless. How could you have love, really, if you have to love, if there wasn't an option? Love has to do with choosing Now, how could you have bravery? How could you have patriotism and loyalty? And So many of the highest character qualities that we believe in are only possible because people have a choice. So I don't have it all figured out, but um, Jesus just lets them know, look, this place is going to be trashed. 
and you won't see me until, you know, you're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Chapter 14, Jesus comes across a man with dropsy, uh, and dropsy is just edema. It's like a swelling of the body. And um, this guy had dropsy, and verse 3, Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees and said, oh, by the way, he had gone to the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat, and they were watching him closely, verse 1 says. So he said, so is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They probably brought this swollen guy suffering from edema in to try to trap him because it was the Sabbath and they wanted to nail him. So before he healed the guy, he said to them, so is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they had got into it with him before and didn't, you know, they didn't want to play into the trap of saying, well, you know, no, I would rather have a guy still be miserable. So they, they knew it was a trap and they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. He had had similar conversations before. Basically what he was saying is, even you who are so adamant about keeping the Sabbath, if you have a valuable animal that slips in a hole, even if it's the Sabbath, you make an exception and you pull them out. They had all kinds of crazy rules. Now, one of the rules... You weren't allowed to tie a knot or use a rope on the Sabbath. One exception. Women were able to lace up their girdle on the Sabbath. I guess it was, you got to have limitations. And, and uh, they, for some reason, men were in charge of religion, and they just thought, ladies, you know, wrap it up a little bit. That, that'll be nice. Um, but what they would do if an ox would fall into the, a hole is they would tie several of their wives' girdles together and wrap it around and pull the ox out with girdles. That's how silly it was. Basically, over and over again, Jesus makes this point. Can you use a little common sense in your application of the Scriptures? Can you look at the law, and if you interpret the law in a way that's abusive or disruptive or painful or unfair or mean, if it seems like the result of the law is something that treats somebody in a way that God wouldn't treat them, can't you figure out, you know, in another place Jesus said, God made the Sabbath for man. He didn't make man for the Sabbath. And I think Still today, I mean, there are people who have such rigid rules that they won't make an exception of any rule ever. And that's pharisaical thinking, where you think, okay, I'm going to live by the rules. There are times when certain rules are made to be broken because you're supposed to use common sense. This was true in the Sabbath, and frankly, this is true of almost everything. Now, you know, I remember a time when Maybe I've told you the story before, but it happened years ago, and, and some kids in our school came to me, and they were really distraught because their mom said she was going to kill herself today, and she was over by herself in their apartment with the lights off, and the kids were scared to death. So I went over there, and I, and I, I went in, and I sat with her for five, six hours in the dark, just praying for her and listening to her and talking with her. And 
about a week later, she ended up okay. She still she comes to our church on Sundays and 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 but but she um, at that time, you know, I remember thinking, oh man, I hope Romaine doesn't find out. And it was about two weeks later. Romaine was a Marine Corps sergeant who was the assistant pastor at Costa Mesa. A couple weeks later, Romaine pulled me off in a corner, and he goes, "Did you go over and sit with a woman, a single woman?" alone in a dark apartment for six hours by yourself? And I go, yeah. And he said, don't you ever lose the ability to do something like that when God opens the door? Because I guess she had told him later that that's what saved her life. So save mine too. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there are people who, who will use scripture in a way that doesn't even take into allowance common sense. There are people who take divorce laws and they insist that a woman needs to stay in an abusive relationship because there isn't a specific thing in the scripture that says, you know, that, you know, if your if your spouse beats you up, you can leave. That's so stupid. All you have to do is look at some of the other exceptions and go, well, guy, if the, of course he wouldn't want someone to endanger their life, endanger their kids' lives, or be destroyed by someone else. Um, interpret the law with some common sense. And Jesus does this. And There are some people who every time Jesus does this, they go, well, yeah, he was Jesus. He was God, so he was allowed to do that. He was blasting the Pharisees because they couldn't figure this out. They couldn't figure that a righteous life is not the life of a jerk because, oh, well, here's the law. Here's what it's supposed to say. You know, there are times, I mean, if you're driving your wife to the hospital and she's bleeding out, you don't have to drive under the speed limit. There are times when all of us, and you realize, okay, yeah, I could get a ticket, but I want to get to the hospital, and they can chase me all they want, and I'll explain it after I get to a hospital. Everyone understands that about the law, that there are times when the law wasn't designed for this type of a situation. And Jesus showed the same thing about the Old Testament law. This wasn't, it's not like you keep the law anyway. Let's face it, you know, everyone violated the law except Jesus. But the law was only rules that were designed to help us to understand God's character. So don't apply the rules in a way that misunderstands God's character. It just wouldn't make sense. It's kind of like the old um, story of Pastor Chuck when all the hippies started coming to Calvary Chapel and you know they never wore shoes and it really stunk up the carpet. And in those days, we had this gross shag carpet, and it was really nasty. And so the, you know, the board members wanted to make a rule that, that uh, you know, we would uh, not allow people to be barefoot in church. And Chuck made the statement, then just rip out the carpet. I would rather rip out the carpet than to tell people that they can't come to church just the way that they are. Um, it made sense... The, the board member's position, but it, it ignores a greater truth, a greater value. Um, and we should never ignore a greater value in order to try to adhere to some little rule. You need to look at the rule and see why was that rule actually made. And so that's kind of what Jesus does constantly. And they couldn't answer him. 
Now he told the parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. They were again still at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and he noticed that people were jockeying for position. Who gets to sit in the best seats? And he said, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place, lest someone more honorable than you is invited. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. When you're invited, go sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He goes, don't push to get the best seat, because somebody may end up coming up to you and saying, oh, that seat's reserved, and now you're going to end up sitting way in the back, plus you end up looking stupid for being there. I've been in this situation before where, you know, somebody told me I could sit somewhere, and I sat there, and I thought, oh, this is a great seat. And then it ended up, oh, no, sorry, this person is sitting here, and then you're like, all the other seats are gone, and you're sitting way in the back. So Jesus said, it's a lot better to just take a back seat, and if somebody wants you to sit up front, let them invite you. And again, using this principle to say, sometimes it's not what it seems. And the last will be first, and the first will be last. People who promote themselves almost always are cruising for a bruising. People who promote themselves, a whole lot of people are going to be looking to knock them off their pedestal. And so in every area of life, it's just not a good idea to try to toot your own horn. Do whatever you want to do. I'm not saying that you shouldn't achieve. Achievement's a wonderful thing. But be humble about it and don't be constantly worried about what people think of you and trying to elevate yourself or promote yourself. I, you know, People sometimes call up and complain because they go on our website and they can't see any pictures of me on there. And I mean, a lot of guys, you go on their website and their picture's just plastered everywhere. And I mean, they're, they're probably better looking than I am. I usually just tell people, well, come on Sunday and see me and you'll understand why I don't put my <laughs> picture on the webpage. But yeah, we probably do need to put pictures on there so people can know, you know who you are and who the other people are on staff. But you know, promoting yourself just makes you a target a lot of times. And so Jesus is just going, you know, it doesn't always end the way it started, so take a back seat and and be humble. And then, talking about suppers, he turned to uh, one of those who sat at the table with him, and this guy was trying to make points. He goes, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. He's going, oh, I think I get this. Yeah, it's blessed to be in the kingdom of God, isn't it? And he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. But everybody who was supposed to come made excuses. First guy said, I bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. How crazy is that? Yeah, I just bought some real estate, and I haven't seen it yet. Um, Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to go test them. You bought them, and you haven't tested them? These are crazy excuses. Another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Finally, one that made sense. So that servant (laughs) came and reported these things to his master. 
And then the master of the house, being angry, said to the servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, we already got all those guys. They all showed up anyway. There's still room. The master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper." uncomfortable moment for the religious leaders who are at this banquet because he's saying you guys are good for excuses there's an old saying that says the person who's good for excuses is seldom good for anything else and so they had all these excuses for why they couldn't show up and so jesus goes that's okay what what god does is he just gets who he can take and so yeah you look around and you go wow bunch of cast-offs. But see, in this parable, that's what the master did. He goes, I just want the place full. Now, most of us find ourselves in the family of God just because so many brilliant, beautiful, talented people bailed. And so he goes, okay, we're the ones that were in the highways and byways, and he compelled us to come. But he's going to fill it up. Everyone who's supposed to be there will be there. But again, it's not who you think. God doesn't choose people the way we would. And he doesn't mess around. If somebody doesn't want to hear about him, he's fine. He moves on to someone who will. Most of us ended up coming to Christ when we got desperate. If we went around the room and we told the stories of how messed up we were when we finally recognized who Jesus was, we could fill a book easily. Now, some of you are the exceptions, and that's great. But for most of us, we had to kind of mess things up until there were no other options. And then here, somebody came along and made an invitation to us to come to a banquet, and we did, and we discovered a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's how he does it. And he has a special heart for the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. Those are... As, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not many wise, not many nobles. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So that's always the way he does it. And often those are the people who are ready to listen. People who still think they have it all together aren't ready for something that will change their life. Um, sometimes you have to hit bottom first. Now he goes on, and great multitudes went after him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, his own suke, his own soul, also he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build the tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace, so likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. First of all, hating your father, your mother, your wife, 
your children, your brothers, your sisters, and even your own life. If you don't do that, you can't become his disciple. Now, the word hate is, it means hate. But the word is used often in a comparative sense. And, you know, some people translate it, love them less. The idea is you need to hate them compared to your commitment and love for Jesus Christ. So love and hate are comparative terms. Now over in John chapter 12, around verse 24, 25, something like that, Jesus says, if you don't hate your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lay down your life, you'll gain it. Same word, suke. Now, obviously, he knows that people want their life. You don't, you don't hate your life. But you can't get obsessed with your soul and put that ahead of everything else and somehow then expect to find your life because life is funny that way. The harder you try, the worse you do. And so he's using the same thing and just saying everything else that you care about, basically there in verse 33, you forsake all or you can't be my disciple. That means every human relationship. That means every possession. That means every advantage. And in every way, you take all of that, good or bad, and you go, that doesn't mean anything to me compared to loving Christ. That's why Paul said, I count everything as done compared to knowing Christ. Now, this is difficult for us because we have people in our lives who are really valuable. We have things in our lives who are that are really valuable. But here's the problem. You cannot have two masters. And when we live our life worrying about what people think and worrying about making sure that we nurture our relationships with relatives or friends or enemies or others, we give ourselves over to people-pleasing in a way that's just positively destructive. We only, like we were talking about Sunday, all I want to do is please God. If I please God, I'll probably end up pleasing some other people too. But that's the way I have to go. And you will find your best relationships with people who also want to please and serve God. That's why Jesus, remember earlier we saw it, his mom and his brothers came and wanted to tell him to, to chill out a little bit. And he said, who are my mother, my brothers? my sisters, the ones who are here with me. And it's a blessing when someone who is in your family also is supportive of your walk with the Lord and allows you to put God first. But anyone who wants to supersede you and your relationship with God, that is out. That will not work. I don't care how well-intentioned they are, because the most destructive thing we can ever do in our lives is to try to please more than just God. It just doesn't work. And so if someone really loves you and loves God, they will support who you are and what you feel God is calling you to do. If they don't, they're going to pull you down. They're going to pull you back. And Jesus says, look, even those relationships can get in the way. And there may be times when you just have to say, sorry, but what you want from me is something I can't deliver to you because I have to serve God. 
I have to do what God has called me to do. And sometimes even family members can get in the way of that. And if they drag us down, then we become ineffective in pleasing the one who we're supposed to please. And so Jesus uses those illustrations of counting the cost. If you're going to build a tower, make sure you get all the supplies. If you're going to fight a war, make sure that your army is able to match up with the other army, even if you're outnumbered two to one. The idea is, I'm not going to spring this on you. This is just reality when you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you have to serve him and him alone. Count the cost. It will cost you. It will be expensive. It will cost you some family relationships. It will cost you some of your best friends, maybe. It will cost you plenty. But you have to do what God says, and better to get that out of the way right off the bat, who's the boss, who it is that you answer to, and you serve only him, and every other relationship looks like hatred compared to the love that we have for him. And again, the forsaking all. It means even the things that you value, you give up. Not necessarily that you give them away, but that you're willing to give them away. And if you need to hear more about this, come on Sunday, because this passage that we're looking at this week talks about the cost and what that does to us, and that sometimes it's going to hurt. So come out on Sunday, and, uh, or if you're listening to the DVD, find the, uh, find the one on 1 Peter chapter 4, the first half of the chapter, and we'll go into this more. And then he goes on to say, salt is good, but if it's lost its flavor, how can it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land or for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you lose your difference, if you lose your effectiveness, if your life gets watered down because you're being dragged down by your stuff, or you're being dragged down by relationships, you're being dragged down even by family, then you're worthless. The only way you're worth anything to anyone is if you follow Jesus Christ with all your heart and put everything else into the background and just go, you know what? Yes, we have people that we get to join arm in arm with and serve God together. But we find those people by finding him and working together with people who are like-minded. And if somebody doesn't want you to do what God tells you to do, they're not your friend. And you need to keep your saltiness, you need to keep your distinction, you need to keep your difference in order to be effective. Chapter 15, parables of some lost things. First of all, the parable of the lost sheep. In the context, tax collectors and sinners, Pharisees and scribes were all gathering around. And the scribes and Pharisees were complaining that the Tax collectors and sinners were hanging out with him, and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So they didn't like who he was associating with. And he spoke this parable and said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls all his friends and says, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep which was lost. 
I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. He says, you religious leaders, you don't get it. If someone's a good shepherd and they lose one sheep, 99 are already in the fold. They go after the one. And this is so much the heart of the Lord. And it's what the Pharisees and and the scribes didn't understand. Why he would want to go out of his way for people who were desperate, for people who didn't have a lot to offer. Why the heart for the hurting? Well, basically, they thought they were fine. And so he was just going, okay, great. Stay in the fold. I'm going to look for lost people. And when a, when a shepherd leaves 99 to go after the one, that is when he would rather spend his time hunting down someone who's lost than to spend his time hanging around with people who think they're already pretty good, that shows you something about his heart. And that's why he came after each of us. Because we were that one We were that one who had wandered off. Like Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. To understand that we are all lost without him is the first prerequisite to coming to know him. And so he uses this picture of a lost sheep. And and it's a beautiful picture, really, of compassion. But remember... He's still trying to teach the scribes and Pharisees why you ought to care about people who are messed up. And then he goes on and says, there's a woman. She has 10 silver coins, and she loses one. She sweeps the whole house, lights a lantern, searches carefully, and when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors and goes, I found the coin that's missing. Likewise, I say to you, verse 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That's his heart, tracking down the one who is lost. Now, in the context of those two things, the the lost sheep and the lost coin, now he talks about a lost son. It gets much more personal at this point. And um, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I think it not only, at the one hand, shows the heart of God, but at the other hand, nails us when we become pharisaical, when we become judgmental, when we become like thinking like we're good because we're not out there doing all those bad things that other people do. And you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. The word prodigal just means wasteful. Now, there because I, we don't have time to do a whole message on this, and I've taught on this story before, I'm sure, if not here somewhere, you could probably find it on the internet. But um, I would commend to you one of the better books that I've read in the last couple of years is a book by Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in, in New York City. Um, and his book is called The Prodigal God. And it's about this story, but he's talking about how how apparently wasteful God is for giving us everything. And if you look at the story, you go, man, the dad, why did he even give the kid his inheritance? He knew he was a flake. But Tim Keller develops it and really does a beautiful job of of talking about this parable in a way that I think gets the point. Most people who preach on the prodigal son don't even get the point. The thing was taught for Pharisees. And the point of the parable is the older brother. 
It is not about, oh, that poor lost person is out there. That, that's beside the point. And it makes a good evangelistic appeal. If you're the son who's out there in the pig pen, you know, come home to your father. And Hey, that's good and that's true, but that's not what the story is ultimately about. And so um, another good book on this is, was written by um, Henri Nouwen, um, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, but he wrote a beautiful book about the prodigal son from more of an artistic and meditative standpoint. But I would commend both of those books to you for sure. Um, here's the story. A guy has two sons. The younger one said in verse 12, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. He goes, give me my inheritance now. Now, older brother would get twice as much as the younger brother. So he's asking for a third of what his dad has. You're supposed to get your inheritance when your dad dies. This kid is basically saying, why don't you die so I can get on with my life? Now, some of you who are are getting up there in years, are starting to understand how this would feel to you. When your younger you know, heirs are going, you feeling okay? <laughs> and that's kind of what was going on here. And so he took everything and he got it together and he went to a far country and wasted his possessions with prodigal living. Now again, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, we look at this and go, why would the dad do this? I'll explain that to you when you explain to me why God gives us what we have. Why does God trust us with ministry? Why does God trust us with children? What if you couldn't actually get pregnant until you actually knew what you were doing as a parent? Come on, the civilization would, would have ended thousands of years ago. But God gives us what we can't handle because that stuff isn't what's important to God. He doesn't care about his things. You know, when he picked the, the disciples and gave them jobs, he took Judas, who he knew from the beginning was a con man and a thief, and he goes, you can be the accountant. I mean, that's a, seriously, he goes, here, you take the money because he doesn't care that much about stuff. And so anyway, he went off, and when he had spent everything, there was a famine, and he went and signed up with a citizen of the, this foreign country, and, and he got a job feeding pigs, and said he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but nobody would even give him those. And when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants, this is verse 17, have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. He's getting his speech ready. He's going to go back and knows his dad probably will have a soft spot, and at least he'll feed him. So he practices his speech. He arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And he ran, and, and he fell on his neck and kissed him. You, you'd expect him to at least be gone, I'm going to make him crawl. And that's what we think God would do. God's waiting for us to come to him. And, and he runs to us. Um, Benny Hester had a song they did, When God Ran, that was about this story. And he ran to him, and he, and he fell on his neck, and he just kissed him, and it shows the heart of the father. And the kid started his speech, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he could do the servant pitch, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now that's where the story ends. Most people, when they hear the story, oh, whoopee, you know, he came back, his dad took him back and loved him. And, but the real story is about the older brother. And the older brother is clearly a picture of Pharisees and scribes. The older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Called one of the servants and said, what party is this that I wasn't invited to? And he said, verse 27, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But the brother was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. The brother goes, how dare you celebrate this little weasel? He's been out there whoring around. He wasted his whole inheritance. Interesting that the older brother knew what the younger brother was doing. You wonder how he found that out. Somebody had told him, probably thinking that he would want to help his brother. But he didn't, because he was the good son. He was staying home to do the right things and to protect his own interests, his own inheritance. And, uh, you know, but, but uh, if he really had his father's heart, his father, older gentleman who, who ran to embrace his lost son and, and to celebrate his return. Um, if we have our father's heart, we will want to go after those who are lost. We will have a heart for those who are off in a distant country. When we look at people who are wasting their lives away, we'll see them as opportunities to, to minister, to make a difference, to turn their lives around. Jesus couldn't stand hanging around with religious people because religious people are so often so phony. And I can relate to this. You know, sometimes I'd just rather spend time with people who are just completely non-Christian and not pretending to be anything else than to spend time with people who are phonies and, and you know, but they have all the language down. And you can tell a phony from a mile away. They judge others. As soon as you find somebody who's judging other people, that's your first clue. The older brother didn't have his father's heart at all. But he thought he deserved credit because he had stayed at home, and he claims he had never made a violation. Now, this was the Pharisees through and through. We've never violated the law. We've never done anything wrong. We look at these other people. Oh, they're awful. And how can Jesus hang around with those kind of people? And this whole judgmental thing whereby they're basically saying, I don't want anybody else at our house. I don't want the lost to come home. They're dirty and messy and smelly. And, and Jesus was trying to drive home to them. No. And remember, like the lost 
coin like the lost sheep. Sorry, this is what your father is about. And he is about sometimes getting his hands dirty and having his, ha- his house smell and being accused of associating with the wrong people. That's where his heart is. And the older brother just did not get that. And so the dad talked to him. And he said in verse 29, Lo, these many years I have... Oh, that's the, the son said that. And... Uh, In verse 31, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. It was right. I don't care how righteous of a life that you live. I don't care if you can't even remember the last time you sinned. I don't care if you're just the best person that you know. The Father says this, having a heart for the lost is what's right. And that's more right than any rules that you follow, than any little platitudes that you memorize, than all the phony games that you ever play. This is right to celebrate when lost people are found, when people who need to hear the gospel get to hear the gospel, when people who are desperate show up with an opportunity for you to help them, that's where the Father's heart is. And that's what he was hoping this kid would do with his inheritance. But instead, he was going to hoard it. So who was really the bad son? (laughs) The one who stayed home, followed all the rules, was impeccable. Everyone else would see him as being, you know, to their kids, why can't you be more like him? The uh, younger son was the one that everybody goes, if you keep flunking your math test, you're going to end up like that kid. The last will be first, and the first will be last. God has funny ways of turning things on their head, of turning things upside down. You just don't judge it. You love the lost. You love those who are in need. And is it messy? We don't know what happened to this kid. I mean, chances are he flaked again. You don't know. Didn't matter. This was the father's heart. And he knew that he wasn't going to save them all. God's always known that. And yet what he does is spend his time looking for people who are desperate. And if we spend our time looking for people who are desperate we will find out that every once in a while we'll make an eternal difference in their life. I, it would be way more fun to spend your life hanging around in a little Christian holy club where we just all look at each other and say how good we are. Um, church every night of the week, you know, and, just, and check people at the door, make sure they're not, you know, haven't been doing anything bad, and, well, you come back when you get your act cleaned up. I mean... A lot of times I enjoy being around Christians, um, especially if they're genuine. But we're not here to fellowship only. We're not here just to be with our friends. We're here to reach the lost. That's important. And any avenue that we have to make inroads into that is something that we need to, um, we need to pursue. We need to have that heart. And that's... 
That's Jesus' point here. Chapter 16, the parable of the unjust steward. This is kind of a weird one. I have heard more strange interpretations of this passage. And I think you'll see when you look at it, 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 it is somewhat problematic. Uh, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he was going to get fired. He called him and said, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. He goes, a steward was a guy who would basically be the CEO of the household. Now he says, bring your books in here, and I want to see if this is true, and your job is on the line. So this guy's like, oh boy. The steward said within himself, what shall I do, for my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I can't dig, I'm, too, I'm, an, I'm an executive. I'm ashamed to beg. I've resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of the master's debtors. Now this guy had been flaking, so a lot of people owed money to his master. So he called him up and he says, how much do you owe my master? The guy goes, a hundred measures of oil or barrels of oil. Or in the, in the, I, the word for measure there was about like seven gallons, so a pretty good thing of, of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. You owe me 100? Look, pay me 50 and you're off the hook. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. I guess he knew this guy could afford more than the other guy. So here's what he does. A bunch of people owe money to his master, so he's been, he's been a lousy employee. Now it's fallen apart, and the market has crashed, and now his job is on the line. So he begins doing what in the business world is called discounting receivables. In other words, you find out what someone owes, and you'll give them a discount on it if they'll pay now. So they owe you 100 bucks. go look, Pay me 80 right now and call it quits. Otherwise, I'm going to come after you and I'll get the whole 100 from you later. And this is a typical tactic in business. Often when you have a lot of bad accounts is you try to get people to give whatever they can. It's what's happening essentially in the real estate market with all the short sales. It's just like I can, there's no way I can sell this house for what it's worth. So how can we deal, change the principal on the loan, change the interest rate really low, or sell the house at less than what's owed? How can we work this out? So that's what he did. And in verse 8, the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. 
Now, it's weird to have a parable because you'd normally go, the master is usually representative of God in the parable. The steward would be somebody who's working for God. Now, in this case, clearly the steward's a bad guy because he's called repeatedly the unjust steward. He's been a bad employee. He's been uh, probably skimming off the top or whatever, but whatever he's got, he has nothing to show for it, and he's about to lose his job. So he offers these discounts to people, and you would think, and often when people interpret this parable, they say he cheated in order to try to make friends for himself in the future. And on the surface, you could see that, but clearly the boss knew what he was doing and said, good job. So I don't think we should assume that he was unjust in what he did by discounting the receivables. Um, May or may not, Jesus didn't say one way or the other. But he says there's something about this guy that ought to let you know of a way in which you ought to be more in a way that you aren't. And then he goes into this whole discussion about money and about laying up treasures in heaven, about doing things with your money that will last for eternity. So his whole point in the parable is this guy was ultimately commended because at least he got something done. And not only that, he ultimately made preparations for himself in the future. And his boss actually admired it. He's like, wow, you've got other people who will hire you now, and, and I, got, I have money in the bank. So this is a win-win type situation. But Jesus turns it around, and, and the whole point is, this guy knew that he was in trouble. And he knew that his future was in danger. And he got very creative and actually shrewd in making preparations for the future. And so Jesus is using that picture, that imagery, and saying, you know what, you guys who are so obsessed with your money, who are so obsessed with what you can have today, don't you realize a day of reckoning is coming? Don't you realize that there is an eternity? And if you take all your money and you spend it here, on things that just rot and fall away, that's foolish. You're not set up for the future. Ultimately, you get fired, literally, because you didn't have those eternal values. Now, he goes, this guy was smart enough to at least plan for the future. And he was creative in the way that he did that. Now he's saying, how you handle your money down here has implications for eternity, and you cannot serve God and mammon or God and money. There are ways in which we can use our money on this earth that will bring riches to us in heaven, that will be valuable to us later. And what he is saying is, start to plan now for the day when your cars and your houses and your bank accounts and your jewelry and your clothes and your toys and all, None of that stuff's going to do you any good in the future. So make sure that what you do now, that you're being a good steward, first of all. So it's not being irresponsible. Um, it's working hard, saving well, investing correctly, and doing all those sorts of things. 
but at the same time making investments ultimately in something that's going to last beyond this existence, this earth. And so an important reminder, I think, for all of us to think about, you know, so often we're just living hand to mouth trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to get through the month before I get my next paycheck or my next unemployment check or whatever? And Jesus is going, you have something a lot more important to think about than that. And you better get clever in how you can invest in heaven, in eternity. And it's, it's wonderful when someone can be really blessed financially here on the earth and also lay up treasures in heaven. But man, if it comes down to one or the other, you better spend more time trying to invest in eternity than you do investing in things that are here. And again, this gets right, it fits with all the other stuff too. Are you, are you involved in something that's going to bring lost people to be found? Or are you involved in having those kinds of priorities where you care about the lost? Um, that was where Jesus' heart is here. And he's just saying, you know, some of you guys are completely flaky in what you do with the money that God gives you, and it's his. If it's his money and you're so irresponsible with it, you spend it foolishly or for things that don't last, then how do you expect him to give you more later? And so he's basically telling us, be smart in your investments and make sure they're tied in with eternity. Um, and a good reminder. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided him. They go, oh, you, that's crazy. They got the point. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. He said, you guys' problems, you care about what people think. But you don't care about what God thinks. You don't care about what he says. That's the ultimate decision that will either destroy anyone or absolutely bless their life. When we finally decide, who do we want to please? Who do we want to follow? Who is it that we are looking for for our guidance? The Pharisees were obsessed with what people thought of them. And Jesus said, you ought to be a little bit more concerned about reality and the heart. And so he says, uh, um, ever since up until John the Baptist, that was the period of the law, something different is going on now. The kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The word, that's a hard word to translate. Some of the versions, I think the King James said, you know, something about battling or or the, they take it by force or something like that. The Greek word there is biadzo, comes from the Greek word bios, which means life. Um, but the word biadzo was used often to talk about a crowd when it was a mass of humanity, like a mosh pit or a, when you're trying to get in somewhere and everyone's pushing and he's gone. And so that's probably what he has in mind. And he's saying, there was a time for the prophets but now this is the time for reality, for the gospel. And he said people are literally getting dragged in. They're, they, they're pushing each other 
to get close to hear this message and you're missing it. And he said, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. A tittle was just a little line that would make one letter one letter instead of another. If you look at Hebrew letters, they're like pictures, and the letters are very similar. Um, he said it's all, it's, it's all going to come to pass. And then he throws this in, and it's kind of a weird place to put it. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, why this came up when it did was no doubt there were some Pharisees there who were dumping their spouses for no reason and justifying it legally. And so he's probably looking right at someone and saying this to him just to nail him on it. Now, you can't come up with a doctrine of divorce based on just one scripture. So you have to look at everything that, um, that the scriptures say, including that, you know, um, that sexual sin is something that is the first thing that we see that gives someone the right to divorce. Um, pornaya, as the scriptures put it. So any kind of sexual sin, it would include pornography and things like that too. Um, a, per, a spouse in 1 Corinthians not consenting to dwell with you, not being there. Jesus talks about in Matthew that God allowed, that Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. Somebody just, you know, is so, if people are hard-hearted, sometimes they can't make a marriage work. Um, personally, I don't, I don't think that we can just say, okay, these are the only reasons, because I just don't want to be like a Pharisee. But what Jesus is saying here is, look, understand this. Big picture, you can come up with all the excuses you want. It is, and the word that he uses here for adultery um, it's one. It's one word, and it it came to refer to adultery. But at its definition, it doesn't necessarily mean that. Just like our English word "adulterate" means to mess something up, um, the same idea is kind of in place. And what he's saying is, hey, look, if you divorce your wife in order to marry another, that damages. That is adultery. And marrying someone who is divorced from her husband. Now, in this case, she had no choice. The guy divorced her. And now he's saying that somebody, even somebody who marries the person who has been divorced by somebody else commits adultery. Now, it can't mean that they are guilty of the sin of adultery. That wouldn't make sense. Um, because he's made it clear in Scripture that you're not supposed to be alone unless you have that gift. But what he's saying is the damage that you do affects others. You, your marriage is adulterated, but the next marriage that that person is in is also suffering from some of those same effects. The idea is there's this ripple effect. It's, it's damaging. But again, in the context, he's talking about people who think they got it together, and he says, God knows your heart. And ultimately, God knows the heart of anyone. And we should worry about what he thinks of our heart. Generally, and he uses this thing of divorce, because a lot of times when people get a divorce, their main concern is, what will people think? And, you know, Jesus would be saying, don't worry about what people think. Ultimately, you have to answer to God. And you answer with your heart to him.
And by the way, I, I can't do a complete treatment of divorce and remarriage and all that. It would Someday I'll do like a long, someday I'm going to write a book on that maybe because I think it's so misunderstood um, and scripture's often twisted, but um, I just want to make the point that he's making here. And then the story of the rich man and Lazarus. This is another kind of strange story. There's a rich guy who it says in verse 19, fared sumptuously every day. That is, he was in constant luxury. And there was a beggar named Lazarus full of sores. Uh, Literally, the word there is a special medical term for ulcers. Remember the author, Luke, was was a doctor, and he would remember those details. Who laid at his gate. They both ended up dying. And uh, in verse 22, the beggar was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, wasn't carried anywhere. He was just buried. Um, Abraham's bosom, well, in this passage, and this is the primary passage that we have in the New Testament, to know what happens to people after they die, at least until Jesus rose from the dead. Things changed a bit. Apparently, Hades, the afterlife, had two compartments. One that we call paradise or Abraham's bosom, and the other that was a place of torment. And so Jesus lays this out, and in the story, he says, the Lazarus, which we don't know if that was his real name. We think this was probably a real story, not a parable. Um, People differ on that. There's no other parable where the guy is named, and here he's named. But the name Lazarus means somebody was really desperate, so hard to say. So Lazarus goes to this place called Abraham's bosom. Why is it called Abraham's bosom? Well, for Jewish leaders who heard the story, they know Abraham is in the good place. And to be at Abraham's bosom, we think of it, how in his bosom? That's weird, you know? But as a kid, I remember thinking, this is like heaven at that point was Abraham's stomach. But what it is is, At a banquet in those days, they would lie reclining around the table. And the guest of honor would be in one place, and then somebody who was a special guest would lie right next to him with his head toward the table, feet extended out, as Jesus had the Apostle John laying on his bosom, you know, there at the Last Supper. So he was just, Lazarus went and was right next to Abraham. So he was called Abraham's bosom. That really wasn't what the place was called. And I sometimes, it's probably more proper to call it paradise. Um, But I have people ask, what did they call Abraham's bosom before Abraham? Like where Enoch went. Well, it was called something, (laughs) paradise. So anyhow, they go there. And weird story. And the guy cries and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And and send Lazarus so he could dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. So we know that there's a place of torment. This isn't the ultimate, what we would call hell. This is a place that people would go for temporary um, uh, holding until the time of the judgment. So apparently it was a miserable place, and at least the, the uh, picture of, of flames are used. We don't know if it's literal flames. And Abraham said, son, because I guess he was Jewish, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Now, this isn't because rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. It was the life that they lived and the heart that they had for God. 
And he said, besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor call those from there, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. First he's going, have him bring me a cup of water. And he goes, there's no way that people can go from here to there. Now it's interesting, and we don't know if, you know, in that time, if people in torment were able to see people who were in paradise. Um, in this story, it seemed like he could. Um, but it also makes it very clear you can't go from one place to the other. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So there is no opportunity, and this kind of going to this place of torment was something that the Catholics would tend to lean on a bit when they were talking about purgatory. Um, however, the problem is you cannot get out. <laughs> and so this isn't a temporary place that ultimately you have an opportunity to get out. Um, it's a place of torment. But then his heart was, man, then send him back and tell my brothers. But look what Jesus said that, that Abraham said. He goes, you have, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They've already rejected the Bible. And he said to him, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You know what? If somebody saw someone rise from the dead right in front of them, they're still going to make the same decisions that they've made with life. Often people think, if I could only see a miracle... No, you've seen so many miracles. Every time you walk outside and you look at creation, every time you think about everything that you have that you don't deserve, all the times you've got out of stuff, all the grace that God has shown, the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead for you, scriptures say. But even seeing that, for some people, it's just not enough. Some people insist on going to hell. Nobody goes to hell because God wants them in hell. God wants everyone to be saved. But, you know, and, and in order to go to hell, you have to step over the body of his son Jesus to do it. Um, the invitation is there. But people who reject Jesus Christ, they would reject him no matter what. No matter what kind of miracle they saw, no matter what would happen in their life, I don't care if they discovered the ark I don't care if they, you know, found the, you know, the original Ten Commandments. I don't care if the Ark of the Covenant showed up. I don't care. It doesn't matter what miracle they would see. When God sent his son and he died and rose from the dead, and that's not enough for you, sorry. He's got no other tricks up his sleeve. And that's why when we saw her earlier, he goes, you know, the only sign you need to see is the sign of Jonah the prophet. I'm going to die. I'm going to come back to life. If that doesn't work for you, I got nothing for you. And so that wraps up the 16th chapter. Made it through just a little late. Sorry about that. But I really love these teachings of Jesus and these parables and things like that. They're just so rich. Um, so uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for 
the fact that Luke was so meticulous in recording a lot of these great stories and teachings that Jesus taught that other guys had already forgotten about. And we get such an insight and such a view of you, Lord, and especially of your heart. I pray that you would always help us to have a heart for those who hurt. For us to go out of our way, to be able to leave the 99, to go out on the fringes, to reach out to someone who's in need. Because if you hadn't done that...